Well, according to this clock, I'm uh, 15 minutes over already here. So don't get lost in thought and think that I am uh, that late, please. Pay attention. <laughs> and uh, this one back here is, uh, no, it hadn't stopped, has it? No, it had the other day, but Margaret got it going again. <laughs> I can count on Margaret to keep that going. I wish you'd left it stop, Margaret, and I wouldn't have known what time it was. I could have just preached on. No, <laughs> no we, she's got it going again. Appreciate your presence uh, this morning. Glad to have those who are visiting uh, with us, and uh, you are truly our honored guest. We have been involved on Sunday mornings, um, for the most part, uh, in a series of lessons that we will um, plan to conclude about the end of the year on the New Testament Christian. And as I have uh, often mentioned, this is a series based upon the topics that were featured at the Memphis School of Preaching Lectureship last uh, March, an excellent uh, study on uh, the New Testament Christian, various aspects of New Testament Christianity. Uh, the New Testament Christian contends for the faith. Uh, the New Testament Christian uh, guards his tongue. We have looked at several uh, topics, and uh, today we look at uh, another topic along this theme, and that is that the New Testament Christian worships in spirit and truth. You know, there are so many blessings that we enjoy as a part of those who are blessed and privileged to be under the, the new covenant, the covenant of, of Christ. The book of Hebrews uh, has as its key word the word better, uh, describing the better blessings, the better promises uh, that we have, the better hope that we have. Everything is better under the new covenant. And oh, how those who are blessed and privileged to live under that new covenant, those of us who are New Testament Christians, oh, how grateful we should be. And oh, how that gratitude should pour forth in, in loving service to our God and in worship to our God. Our hearts should be directed to the God of heaven and our worship as we shall see, should be directed toward him. Let me say at the outset that Brother Cliff Goodwin, a very fine and faithful gospel preacher, well-known gospel preacher who now hosts the Preaching the Gospel television uh, program, having taken that program uh, as Brother James Watkins gave it up, and uh, he has continued that program. He preaches for the Ironiton Congregation in uh, Ironiton, Alabama, near, Tusca, near um, Aniston, in the Aniston area. And uh, Brother Cliff is a, a fine uh, gospel preacher. And his lesson at the lectureship was this theme. And I have borrowed some uh, material from, from him. But as he began that, uh, that lesson, uh, he mentioned that he had borrowed something from the late Wendell Winkler, uh, a wonderful gospel preacher who was uh, faithful throughout his uh, days and who has now gone on to his reward. And so Brother Cliff mentioned at the uh, beginning of his manuscript that the basic outline of his lesson, the basic points, came from a lesson he had once heard. He didn't know when or where, actually, but he knew that it was uh, our, our dear late brother Wendell Winkler who had presented it. And so we're going to follow that basic uh, outline uh, this morning. Our whole lesson basically is centered around one verse of Scripture, the verse that you see. God is spirit, 
And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This is a statement that Jesus made, as you well recall, I'm sure, to the uh, Samaritan woman as he encountered her at the well of, of Sychar and as she talked about the fact that the Samaritans worshipped in Mount uh, Gerizim and uh, obviously they did not worship as did the Jews. But Jesus pointed out that there was something else that was coming. And that while the Jews worshipped according to the way that God wanted them to worship, whereas the Samaritans uh, involved themselves in a corruption of that worship, Jesus pointed out in verse 23, the verse preceding this one, that the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And then he followed that with this statement you see, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What is involved? There's so much that is involved in carrying out what worship to God should be. And we're going to look at it from several standpoints, as we said, following uh, Brother Cliff's uh, borrowing of uh, Brother Wendell Winkler's uh, outline of this, as we look, first of all, at the aim of worship. The aim of worship. In other words, where is our worship to be uh, directed? Well, I think we all know the answer to that, and that is that man's worship is directed to God, and it is directed to God alone. But it must be directed to God, who will have no other gods before him. That goes back to the Old Covenant, remember? You will have no other gods before me, but I, the Lord, am a jealous God. And that's what got the people of old in so much difficulty, first in the northern kingdom and later in the southern kingdom, was the fact that their heart was divided. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 2 makes that very statement. Your heart, their heart is divided. God wants a directed heart, not a divided heart. His determination, what he deserves, what he demands, what he describes, if you will, is that all worship should be geared or directed to toward Him and to Him alone. It's not simply, Brother Goodwin makes this statement, and I like this statement, it is not simply the fact that God loves man, but that God would love man that excites worship. I like that statement. Think about it. It is not the fact that God loves man, and we know that He does. First John four nineteen. we love Him because He first loved us, but it is not so much the fact that He loves us, but that He would love us. As I thought about this, I, I thought about the vastness of, of the universe. And I thought about the statement of the, the psalmist when he said, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? You remember we talked about visitation last Sunday morning, that you visit him. God's visitation of man was one of the aspects of that lesson we looked at. And how many passages there are that speak of God's visitation of man. God's visitation of man culminated in the giving of God's only begotten Son. And as Brother Goodwin points out here, the fact that God loves man is not so much it, but the fact that God would love man. When we consider the nature of God, when we consider God's mercy and God's love toward us, it ought to excite our worship, just the very thought that He would 
love us. A God who is so powerful, a God who is omnipotent, a God who is omnipresent, but thankfully a God who is omnibenevolent, and a God who loves the pinnacle of his creation. Therefore, we should reciprocate with hearts that are directed toward him. The aim of the heart, so to speak, is God and God alone. Brother Cliff points out a statement in his lesson from many preachers who have made this statement, and I like this as well. His worthship, W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P, his worthship demands man's worship. He is worthy. He is worthy of our worship. And he has manifested his love toward us in so many ways. And as we have said, the culmination of the manifestation of that love is in the giving of the sinless Son of God. That one who was equal with God would take the form of a servant, humble himself, and come in fashion as a man and die the most horrific death that one could die and face the separation for a time from the Father himself as he bore the sins of mankind upon his sinless shoulders, the fact that God would love man to that extent should excite worship. No question about that. And so the aim of our worship is to God and to God alone. But there's another aspect we must appreciate, and that is the action, the action of worship. Worship, worship is more than feeling. Worship involves doing. It involves action. Obviously, feeling is involved, and we'll talk more about that as we discuss the matter of attitude a little bit later on, but worship is more than feeling. It involves doing something. If we look at a passage from the Old Testament, we get a clear indication of this point as we find the first instance of the word worship being used in Scripture. This is not the first worship in Scripture, but it is the first time the word is used, and it's in relation to the sacrifice that Abraham was told to make of his only son Isaac by God. And we know the rest of that account that ultimately Abraham, while he was willing to do so and he was willing to follow through, had even raised the knife in his hand to slay his only son that God stopped him and said, now I know, now I know the kind of faith you have in effect. But notice something in preparation for that carrying out of that command that God had given him. In verse 3, after God had said, take your son Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 3 says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, he did three days of travel to get there to worship. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship. And there's the first use of worship in Scripture. And worship and we will come back to you. And so Abraham understood there was doing involved in worship. Altars had to be constructed in those patriarchal and in the Mosaic dispensations. And those altars had to be constructed just as as God uh, instructed them to be. There was preparation. There was doing. Yes, God was concerned about 
the feeling, as we shall see more in just a moment, but the action of worship involves doing. Brother Jimmy Clark, as Brother Goodwin quotes him in his manuscript, says, Worship is not just a frame of mind. Worship involves both the mind and the expression of that mind in action. There are three words we find in the New Testament for worship, and we're not going to take the time uh, at this time to fully discuss those, but one that we see quite often is the word proskuneo. And the idea there literally is to kiss toward or to kiss the hand toward. But it manifests itself in an action of bowing down, more like prostrate on the, uh, on the ground, uh, in an action of obeisance. Uh, is the idea of that word uh, proskuneo. And so there is an action, uh, a reverential uh, spirit. And, and another word for worship in, in the New Testament uh, has as its original idea standing apart a distance from someone. Uh, and so the idea there of another word for worship that's used in the New Testament is we understand that there is there is distance, as it were, between us and the God whom we worship. There's a reverential respect and attitude that we are to always manifest. We don't take a casual, buddy-buddy approach to our worship to the God of heaven. But there's a reverential uh, attitude and action that must be uh, involved. And so there is action involved in worship. But we also need to see the authority of worship. And the fact that there is action in worship leads us to this point. The action of worship must be authorized. The action of worship must be what? Authorized action. It's not just any action, but it's an action that is authorized. And that gets us back to John 4.24. One aspect of that verse is must worship in truth. Must worship in truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? We've talked about it before. When we go to John 17, 17, Jesus in his prayer to the Father, in this particular portion of his prayer, he's praying for his disciples. He later in this prayer turns his attention to all those who would believe on, the, on him through their word, through the word of the apostles. But at this point in the prayer... He is praying specifically for his apostles and he prays, sanctify them, set them apart, is the idea of sanctify, sanctify them through your truth or by your truth, and then he adds, your word is truth. So it becomes abundantly clear that the sanctification process, the process by which we are set apart from the world and set apart for God for a holy use, comes through what? It comes through the truth but the truth is in the Word. Your Word is truth. And so therefore, our authority for worship must come from the Word. But as we've already pointed out, we are under the better covenant, the last will and testament of Christ. Therefore, the authority for worship is not gleaned from the Old Testament uh, economy. It is not gleaned from the way that the patriarchs worshipped by building altars as God had prescribed and offering animal sacrifices which simply typified or foreshadowed the ultimate shedding of the blood of the sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
nor is it the economy of the Mosaic dispensation that we are to embrace and worship according to that, but it is the new covenant, the better covenant. Remember in John 12, 48, Jesus said, He who rejects me and does not receive my word has that which judges him. The words that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. The word that I have spoken, the new covenant. Therefore, we must be concerned about the authority of worship in the new covenant, not the old covenant. And when we do that, we see that the New Testament authorizes five acts of worship, no more and no less. The apostolic church engaged in worship in five specific actions, five specific avenues. Let's look at them quickly. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, we see that preaching or Bible study, the proclamation of the word was involved. Now on the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. When we go back to Acts 2 and verse 42, we find authorization for prayer. Incidentally, as well as other aspects of worship for that matter, because others are included in this verse. But in verse 42, they, the early Christians, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in break, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Breaking of bread brings us to the Lord's Supper. And we could use Acts 2.42 for the authorization there, because the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42 is a clear reference to the partaking of the Lord's Supper, but we also have 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23. We go back to Matthew 26 and we see the Lord's institution of the Lord's Supper at the last uh, Passover that he observed with his disciples and instituted the Lord's Supper and said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And then the New Testament gives us the, the frequency by which and in which or through which the uh, New Testament church partook. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and following recounts what the Lord did in instituting the Lord's Supper and binds it clearly upon all Christians for all time to come. And then in that same 1 Corinthians uh, epistle, at chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also on the first day of the week. Which first day? Of which week? The first day of every week, just as with the Lord's Supper. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And the fifth act of worship in which the New Testament church engaged was singing. Acapella singing. That is singing without musical, uh, mechanical musical accompaniment. And one of the passages, the one I've noted here, Colossians 3. And verse 16, but again, there's a parallel passage in Ephesians 5, 18, and 19 on the same uh, subject of singing. But Colossians 3, 16 admonishes, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Ephesians 5, 18 says, be filled with the Spirit. The two passages are parallel. How do we allow the Spirit to, uh, to be within us or to be filled with the Spirit? By letting the word of Christ dwell in us because that's how the Spirit dwells. It's through His word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts 
to the Lord. And Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, as we said, is the parallel passage. There is not a single passage in all of the New Testament that includes the mechanical instrument of music in worship. And it's interesting that the verse that immediately follows the verse we have just cited from Colossians 3.16 says this, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Do all in the name. To do something in the name of Jesus is to do it by His authority. Therefore, the authority in our worship must come from Jesus Christ. That is, it must come from His Word. Sanctify them through your truth. Your Word is truth. And so, the authority of worship must come from heaven. That is, it must come through the divinely given Word. Sing is a specific term. Music is a generic term. We've talked about it many times before. And Brother Burt Jones, incidentally, when he comes to to do the uh, singing workshop, January 19th through the 21st, the dates are set. He begins that series on Sunday morning with a Bible study lesson in the Bible class on authority. He then follows it with a sermon in the AM worship period on the use of instrumental music and the fact that it's sinful in worship and then begins the more practical aspects of the uh, uh, workshop itself on Sunday night. And uh, we want you to mark your calendar for that. It's going to be a great three days. But that's a timely topic because of the very challenge we're facing, as we've been talking about recently in Bible class, of those who are bringing in the instrument first in their youth activities and then moving it on into a, a worship service while continuing to have an a cappella service uh, along with it. That's the way it's generally done and ultimately maybe uh, doing away with the, uh, the a cappella service. Who knows where it will come but, or what it will come to. But there is no authority for anything other than these five things we have just briefly enumerated. The New Testament church engaged in nothing more and nothing less than these actions of worship. And so that's the authority of worship. It must come from the New Testament. And it does make a difference. And if you don't think it does, ask Nadab and Abihu. Uh, if you could, I'll never forget the illustration that B.J. Clark gave. Uh, I've heard him give it, I think, a couple of times in a lesson where he was talking with someone about authority and about... Um, bringing in the instrument, and while Nadab and Abihu are Old Testament examples, Paul says in Romans 15, 4, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and com uh, comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so he was looking at Nadab and Abihu and reminding uh, someone of that, and the response that from that individual was, Nadab and Abihu, they're dead. And B.J. said, yes, that's my point. How did they die? They died by introducing into the worship of God profane fire. That is, coals that were obtained, coals of fire that were obtained from some other place other than the altar that was before the Lord. Leviticus 16.12, I believe, is the passage that says that was the place they were to obtain the fire. They offered profane fires, the New King James says. The King James says strange fire. They got it from another place. Was it fire? Yes. Was it, was it holy, that is, set apart for use in worship? No. Neither is the mechanical instrument. 
It is profane. It is introducing a totally different element into the worship. We have just gone through five elements of worship. You cannot include the instrument without adding a sixth element of worship. That's what you have done. And that is totally unauthorized and therefore sinful. But what about the attitude of worship? Well, John 4.24 not only says worship in truth, but it says must worship in spirit. Must worship in spirit. Therefore, our hearts. Our hearts must be fully engaged. Hearts filled to overflowing with gratitude and love for the blessings, the boundless blessings that we enjoy in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brother Cliff Goodwin in his um, excellent manuscript makes this statement and then he follows it with something that I want to read a portion of. He says, worshiping in spirit probably poses a greater challenge to most members of Christ's church than does worshiping in truth. And I think that's uh, an accurate statement. Uh, in other words, you know, we're, we're, we're all going to go through here when we're, before we're done, five acts of worship. No more, no less, because we're concerned about the authority for what we do. But what about the attitude of each one here in that worship? Does that pose perhaps a greater challenge uh, to our worship than worshiping in truth? Well, let me read uh, something. And incidentally, and he points this out, when we talk about worshiping in spirit and what, that's, uh, what that involves and um, the idea of sincerity of heart, and I've used this passage before as well. If you go back to Joshua chapter 24 and you look at verse 14, you see a passage in Joshua 24, 14 that is very similar in expression to John 4, 24. And uh, I believe it, it needs to be compared and can be compared, uh, validly so. Joshua here, speaking to the people as he addressed them now, as he has assumed the leadership of God's people, and as he is now issuing his farewell address, as he knows he's going the way of all the earth, he has served God well and served the people well. But he says, now therefore, this is verse 14, chapter 24, now therefore... Fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. I believe that's very similar to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth, in sincerity and in truth. But back to the point that Brother Cliff makes about worshiping in spirit probably posing a greater challenge to most members of Christ's church than does worshiping in truth. He has a very sobering statement here, a very challenging statement. He says, worshiping in spirit probably poses a greater challenge. That's the statement we just read. And then he says, uh, as a part of this, certainly digression and error have pulled away many members of the church with regard to their worship practices. 
However, there are many other members of the church who seemingly get all the externals right in worship only to neglect the proper spirit. This conclusion is drawn from a number of observations. One, how can a person be totally sincere in worshiping God on Sunday morning only to willingly forsake the opportunity to do so again that evening? God is just as worthy on Sunday night as he is on Sunday morning. Two, how can a worshiper's spirit truly be engaged in worship when he is obviously distracting others or even distracted himself? Worshiping in spirit demands both careful attention and effort. A final observation is not conclusive in itself, but it merits further consideration. How can hearts sincerely be engaged in the worship assembly when they are seemingly consumed with worldly pursuits or matters just prior to and immediately following worship time? Is it not the case that worship requires some degree of preparation? Those are thoughts we need to consider, I believe. He says probably much more preaching and teaching need to be done along these lines. For a member of the church to sing the words, Oh, how I love Jesus, while his thoughts are centered on what he will do after services, is a violation of New Testament teaching. We do have to have our minds engaged in worship. The attitude of worship, it is vitally important as well as the actions. But what about, what about the absolute of worship? You see, John 4.24 has a very important word in it, and that word is must. 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 And that takes us back to another Old Testament example where an eternal principle is clearly established the first time we read of worship, not the word, that word we've already seen in Genesis 22, but the first worship we read about is in Genesis 4, where we explicitly see that two men, Cain and Abel, were offering to God a sacrifice, one of whom was uh, acceptable, the other rejected. Verse 3 of chapter 4 of Genesis, and in the process of time it came to pass that Cain, that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. What have we studied in times past about this? We have concluded that God told both men what to offer, and that Cain did not comply, and that Abel did. And Hebrews 11.4 reminds us of that and leads us to this conclusion ultimately. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was a righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. Abel offered by faith a more excellent sacrifice. But as we've often noted, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So therefore, if Abel offered by faith, and faith comes by hearing the word of God, we conclude logically that God told both men what to offer. God wanted a blood sacrifice, not a vegetable sacrifice. There was nothing in the fruit of the ground that could typify 
the blood of the Lamb of God who would ultimately take away the sins of the world by shedding his sinless blood. But there was something in the firstling of the flock and the blood and the fat thereof that could typify and did typify that ultimate sacrifice. Abel complied and God blessed him. We must comply if God is to bless us in terms of worship. We must worship in spirit and truth. Brother Cliff brings in a passage from Matthew 21, 25 that I'd like to use as well where some in Jesus' day were questioning his authority. By what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus, as he often did, responded with a question. And here was his question to them. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And it put them on the horns of a dilemma. No matter how they answered, they were in trouble. So they just didn't answer at all. But a similar question needs to be asked regarding worship practices. Is the practice from heaven or is it from men? Because remember what Jesus said about man's worship practices. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. There are those who do that in regard to worship. There are those who do it in regard to perverting the plan of salvation that all of us must adhere to because God says must. To Saul of Tarsus, when he questioned the Lord, what will you have me to do? He said, go into the city, and there it will be told you what you must do, and that's what all of us must do. We must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John eight twenty four, or die in our sins. We must repent of our sins, change our mind about our sins. Luke 13, 3, and again at verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish. And yes, we must sweeten our lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 10, 32, and other passages that could be cited. And yes, our faith must, must culminate in that burial and water to which we are willing to submit ourselves in compliance with what Jesus so simply pointed out when he said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And as we rise in newness of life, we're to be faithful even unto death as children of God, worshiping in spirit and truth, working, working in spirit, that is in keeping with the teaching of the spirit, and living our lives even unto death in accordance with the New Testament, the new covenant, the better covenant, and oh, how we should long to do so and love to do so based upon the realization that God would love us. Not just that he did love us, but that God would love us, as Brother Cliff points out, should excite worship. And we could add it should excite work. It should excite work. If you haven't responded to the invitation in becoming a Christian or if you need to come home to your first love as one who's wandered away, we plead with you to do that now as we stand and sing to encourage you.